Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, comes from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. Uh, It goes from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And he says this in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus always says some pretty bold words. And I think that actually Jesus is much more black and white uh, than people maybe uh, give him credit for. Relative to taking oaths and making promises, in this passage at least, Jesus says there is yes and there is no and there is nothing really in between. Jesus called taking false oaths, breaking true oaths, and making kind of maybe oaths evil. So that's where it comes from. Sounds harsh, but I think I understand what he's trying to say. The only way that we know, I think, the kind of oath that we've taken or the kind of oath taker perhaps we are is when that oath or we are tested. It's easy to make oaths. It's easy to say yes, easy to say no, but then when what we've said is tested, that is when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And in Joshua um, chapter 9, we saw that Joshua's failure to pray, his failure to seek the counsel of God, caused him to make an oath and give his word to what was an enemy that he was supposed to kill. And then the conflict then, what we see in chapter 10, serves to test that commitment and that word that he gave, whether it really was a yes when he said yes. Now, To give you the context, the Amorite king, uh, Amorite or Canaanite is often used to describe kind of just generally these people. So the king in Jerusalem, before it was called Jerusalem, was actually called Salem. But the king of Jerusalem, the Amorite king, is upset at Gibeon. Gibeon was the city that had made a treaty with Joshua, and it was the major city in what was a confederate of about four or five cities. And so when they made the oath, all the cities made the oath. And so this king is very upset at Gibeon, and he's really feeling very threatened. And the reason why is because now that he has this treaty, Joshua has cut what looks like a rectangular wedge in the middle of Canaan, of territory and people that he controls. And so he has, and this is how you see the rest of Joshua kind of play out, a battle in the north and the battle in the south. And so the southern kings that this guy is leading is, is feeling threatened. And so his name, Adonai Zedek, which actually means the Lord is just, ironically, he calls his pals down the south and says, guys, come up and help me fight against Joshua and Gibeon and all these cities because they've made a treaty. And the force he amasses is so powerful that Gibeon, which is described in chapter 10 as a city of warriors, of great warriors, feels threatened themselves. And so they call up to Joshua to say, hey, uh, you said that you would protect us and you have some kind of treaty with us, so come down and defend us. Fight with us, fight for us. And so the question now for Joshua 
is whether he's going to be faithful to his commitment. And the other question that we kind of sit back and watch is like, so is God going to be faithful to Joshua in this commitment that he made? Because ultimately he made this commitment by breaking one with God. Does God do that? Is he faithful to you? You break a promise and you end up doing something or agreeing to something you shouldn't to begin with. Will God be faithful to that? We'll see. Verse 1 of chapter 10 is where we read the kind of setting of the stage for this battle. So it says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hom, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. So then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So let's just try to make this a little applicable to us. All of us at some time in our life, even now, have made promises. And some of those promises that we've made, some of those commitments we've made are just verbal, like work, like I agree to this job and to do this job. Some are formalized with contracts, like marriage. Some agreements or promises we made are just by implication, like you have kids and you make certain promises. I didn't sign a contract to parent my kids. That's just kind of comes with the territory. I have certain obligations as a parent, as a worker in a job, and as a husband. And so... All of the promises you've made are not all equal. They're different in degree, and they have different degrees of obligations according to whatever the promise or the covenant is. But you have promised by nature of that to do certain things and probably promised not to do certain things uh, in those. And so I'm, I'm be, as I began to kind of think about sin and the nature of sin and the heart of sin, I actually believe that, that our enemy, both Satan and sin, um, seeks to destroy us by attempting to simply break our promises. And we do that sometimes by just breaking promises or even making false promises in addition. So God's truth, just plain and simple, God's truth promises one thing, as we see in the Garden of Eden and really throughout the Bible, God's truth promises one thing and sin promises something else. So as a parent, for example, I'm very tempted sometimes to be a bad parent by being selfish or uh, not parenting in, in love or whatever it is and believing the promises of sin. That's, that's sinful. It's wrong. It happens. And that, whenever I do that, is exactly what is occurring. I'm breaking my promise to God and then believing the promise of sin. And we are tempted, I believe, to believe these false promises over the true promises of God. And so then appealing to our sinful flesh, Satan and sin attacks your promise by making it irritating, inconvenient, uncomfortable, even painful to fulfill it. 
That's kind of, it makes sense to me that that's how it works. So what's really being tested whenever we have promises tested is not our faithfulness to our bride or to our children or to your friend or to your boss or even to your church. It's your faithfulness to God. It's the covenant and the promise you've made to God of which those people necessarily are a party to. So this is what happens to Joshua. Now, knowing firsthand the weaknesses of people telling the truth and keeping their promises, the Gibeonites are probably a little fearful or worrisome that Joshua may not actually come through for him. Might not fulfill his obligations because they didn't, basically. Now, it is easy, and lots of people do, to make promises and to give you words and to make vows when it's immediately beneficial. And it's even easy, I think, to keep those vows and to keep those promises and commitments when you're never actually asked to uphold them, or when even upholding them doesn't actually require you to sacrifice anything. The hard part comes when that doesn't happen, and you are asked to uphold that promises, and it's going to cost you something. Now, it's got to be tempting, if you just get in Joshua's mind, to sit back and do nothing. Because if you were to sit back and do nothing and say, dude, I don't care if the Canaanites destroy themselves. You guys fight it out. Whatever. Take care of my work. Right? Sit back. Not only will they kill each other and accomplish the thing that Joshua himself has been commanded to do, but it will also kind of wipe out a really kind of bad chapter in his history. Like, you could just kind of forget it. Especially if he kills the Gibeonites. Like, well, we would have helped him, but it's gone now, so okay, no more promise. It would be very convenient, very tempting to let that happen. Now, what we see, though, is Joshua doesn't give in to what is a temptation. He, instead of seeking his own glory, instead of preserving his own comfort, instead of doing what would be easiest, he considers in making a decision what would be most glorifying to God. What is going to be most glorifying, regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what happens, keeping his promise in this case has absolutely nothing to do with his comfort or his painless life and everything to do with upholding God's glory and honoring God's name and representing God's character truthfully. I actually believe that's what most of our promises are going to require. Sacrifice. Fulfilling most of our promises because of the brokenness of this world is going to require us to have pain. And that's probably the major reason why we won't and why we'll fail and why we'll try to avoid doing it. But Psalm 15 is an interesting verse. The first four verses, I'll read the first and the fourth. But Psalm 15 says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And he describes who that is. And in the fourth verse he says this, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. When it hurts, is the implication. So though it hurts, Joshua doesn't change his mind and he fulfills his promise. And we see that beginning in verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Now, 
there are different ways to fulfill our commitments. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is there are different ways to fulfill our commitments and actually believe that they count, though they don't. To have, we have a yes, we have a no, and a lot of us have a sorta, and a kinda, and a maybe, and a sometimes. Okay? We don't always like the yes and a no, that's so definitive. When we are asked to make good on promises that we do not like, okay, whatever that is for you, whether it be in your marriage right now, whether it be to your children, at your job, in your church, in your community, wherever, when you're asked to do something that you promise to that you do not like, we'll often agree, I think, to do the bare minimum and essentially break our vow passively by not committing to it all the way. And we do this in our marriages, we do this in our friendships, we do this in our jobs, and even in our churches, and even with our faith in God, a promise that we've made to Him. And if this uh, just enough standard isn't determined by our comfort, which is pretty much what I think happens, then oftentimes our standard or our just enough, like what is it actually that makes it count, that I actually fulfilled my promise? We play the compare game with everyone else. How well did that guy do? Well, I did better than him, so I'm good. We do that with our faith. We do that with our marriages. Well, I'm not as bad as them, or I'm not, at least I'm doing this. Not ever questioning whether our commitment was actually fulfilled. It was just fulfilled better than this guy, who clearly didn't fulfill his. That's kind of the way we, we play those games. I do. Maybe you don't, but I do. And it's wrong to do that. Jesus, the word is actually the standard by which we should measure ourselves and pursue. Yes, we'll fail, but he didn't. So that's where we take our standard from. So as a picture of of Jesus here, like a faithful husband, Joshua doesn't just say, well, yeah, fine, I'm married to you. I'm married to you, Gideon, fine. He says, no, I'm going to love you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to protect you. There's a difference between getting married and living in a marriage, I guess, to distinguish those two. Lots of people are married. Lots of people get married. But living in the marriage and loving in that marriage and cultivating that marriage is hard and takes sacrifice. Living out those vows is different than getting married. And so, as a picture of Jesus, Joshua justly satisfies every obligation And then, I believe, he exhibits grace by going beyond what's required. So check out how he fulfills it. And this is where I think we fail. Four ways he fulfills it. Number one, he commits fully. I mean fully. He doesn't send half a fighting force or a few men. He sends everything he has. Every man of valor. His entire army. He doesn't just bring in the junior varsity, send a few guys in. He invests his best, his best time, his best energy, his best resources, his best everything, because a partial promise fulfilled is a broken promise. How do you you be half faithful? I mean, think about that. Because we certainly, I think, try, and there's a lot of marriages trying to work, and relationships and jobs trying to work on half faithful, half excellent work. And it doesn't work. Going through the motions, I do not believe, is what God intends for our commitments. Though it may feel like that at times, and though duty may be the only thing that's keeping you there, but we're intended to be pursuing 
full commitment, complete commitment. I know that's what my bride wants. I'm pretty sure that's what my children want. And I'm certain that's what the church wants as I pastor. Like, well, you know, just give some of your time. Full commitment. He also commits immediately. This is the hard part for my kids and their obedience. They obey me eventually, right? They're kind of slow about it sometimes. But he, Joshua, commits immediately. His obligation is a matter, in his eyes, of obedience to God. Consider if your obligation, fulfilling whatever obligation you, that is most difficult right now to fulfill, if you consider that as an obligation to God, how would that change your behavior? The immediacy and the fullness of your behavior. With your boss, with your husband or bride, with your children. He doesn't delay. And I love that he doesn't, I'm going to call it falsely spiritualized the decision by praying about what he's already been told is right to do. Well, let me pray, Gibby Knights. I know I gave you my word, but let me seek God's face on this, whether I should go. Well, you already didn't seek God's face, and you have obligated yourself to go. And he knows that. At what point does it become rebellious for us if we don't do what we're supposed to do immediately? At what point in our delay, whether it be loving your bride as you ought, loving your children as you ought, working as you ought, at what point is that rebellious and sinful? I can't determine that, but it's a question we should all ask ourselves. At what point do we delay? And usually what we do is like, well, well, I just don't have the feeling to do that yet. Well, I don't have the feeling to work out either, right? And I think I'm pretty certain if I wait... For that feeling to come, I will die obese and unhealthy at age 39. Okay? That's just what will happen. That's, we can't just wait for the feeling all the time. I pray that God gives us the feeling and the fulfillment before moving into our obligations, but that's not often how it works. Why? Because we're sinful. And a lot of our feelings are lures the other way, going, well, wait till. At what point when you're waiting till does it become sinful? He also commits sacrificially, right? Joshua commits in a way that costs him something, at inconvenience to himself and to his entire army and at risk to all the families of Israel. He chooses what I think is the harder right over the easier wrong here. His army has to march, and they do, 25 miles from Gilgal to Gibeon in one night under the cover of darkness. He gets up and goes. And the journey would include an ascent of 4,000 feet up a steep, difficult piece of terrain with no opportunity to rest the entire time. And then, when the dawn broke and they're there, they have to take on a five-army force after being pretty much wiped out, marching in armor for 25 miles. Now, I don't know if you're Joshua thinking... This might not be the greatest successful thing. It's going to be painful, but here's the truth. God's pain, I think, the pain that he allows, is often the best way for us to change. It's the best way for us to change. And so he commits sacrificially because it's right, and then he commits faithfully. So he's going fully, immediately. What do you mean by faithfully? He moves before God tells him he's going to be successful. He 
if the chronology is right here, he starts marching before God guarantees he's actually going to help him. That's huge. He didn't wait for God's guarantee before doing what was right. See, faith, <laughs> the thing about faith is, uh, I love when a lot of people talk about faith, because often they talk about it like after the fact. Faith isn't required when it's easy to fulfill the obligation. It doesn't re- isn't required when you even feel like doing it, even if it's difficult. Faith is required when you don't feel like it, and it's going to be very painful. That's where faith comes in, where God hasn't said, well, this is exactly how it's going to work out. At the time he starts marching, God hasn't said, by the way, in fulfilling this obligation, I'm going to defeat them. Joshua could very well be walking into a slaughter. Of his own making, he made the commitment, but he's doing what's right now. From this point forward, even if it costs him everything, he is taking a huge step of faith, knowing when their army arrives, they're going to be wiped out, and God still hasn't said anything. He does, after they start marching... But without question, it took faith because there was no guarantee of a result. And if there's, quite frankly, if there's a guarantee there for you, it's not going to require faith of you. It's beautiful that we're sending a church out, we're sending Jim out to plant, but there's no guarantee for that, that plant to succeed. There's not. It takes amazing faith for him. It takes amazing faith for anyone who will go with him. Because, I'll tell you right now, I don't think Jim planned to do what he's about to do up until like a year ago, maybe less. It wasn't in the cards. It wasn't at 10 years old going, you know, I'm going to plant a church someday. And now he's at the cusp on it going, well, what can happen? Who knows? But he knows how to be faithful and to take willing steps, trusting God will show up. But there's no guarantee of anything. There's no guarantee of anything. So Joshua, I think, gives us a picture of Christ. Considering his name means Lord of Salvation. Someone who fully fulfilled his commitments. And I just honestly been sitting this week thinking about the different covenants I've made, different promises I've made, commitments that I have made, either verbal, formal, or even informal. For those of you who are married, consider your marriage vows. Consider... Uh, those are parents, your, your parental commitments. Consider if you are uh, neither of the things or all those things, obligations in your vocation. Consider your membership at this church if you are a member. Signed on a line. So did I. Consider your faith itself. The confession that you have made. The baptism that you participated in. Consider what those commitments look like, have you, and I, I, I cannot determine this. I ask the question, say no names, and then you let the Holy Spirit smack you upside the head or give you a pat on the back. Either one. Consider whether you have committed fully or you've given just kind of partial effort, time, energy, resources. Consider whether you have committed immediately or you've been sitting on your hands delaying what you know is right to do for whatever reason until you feel like it, until you feel the Holy Spirit move, though you've already committed verbally to do something. Well, I want the Holy Spirit to move me to fulfill the commitment that I've agreed to. What? Makes no sense. 
Consider in any of those obligations, have you committed sacrificially? What do you mean? Has it cost you anything? Has it cost you anything to be in a relationship with somebody in a marriage? Has it cost you anything to be at a job personally? Or is it all about just your success to the glory of God? Has it cost you anything as a Christian? Is being a Christian cost you anything? Friends? Reputation? Because if it hasn't cost you something, you might want to be concerned. Have you committed in faith or are you waiting for some guaranteed result till you actually move? Because I guarantee you, you will die if you wait that long before you move. Here's, here's the, the thing that is going to sound really direct, but, uh, well, that's how I talk. Without Christ, without Christ, not only will you break your promises, when you do, you won't often see it even as a broken promise. You won't see it as failure. You'll kind of rejustify it as whatever and realize that's because your desires are completely self-centered and self-absorbed. Not to the extreme. You may not do the worst things terrible, but you totally do things that are terrible. Right? But when you confess Jesus as Lord, when you genuinely confess Jesus as Lord and His Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, He changes your heart and your desires. And it becomes your desire to commit fully, immediately, sacrificially, faithfully. Does it mean you succeed fully? No. I'm saying that becomes your desire. That becomes your pursuit. Why? Because it's not coming from you. Your heart has been changed. Your heart's been transformed. And now God is working through you. And so if you don't have those desires in whatever commitments, I do think you need to ask yourself whether you truly have Christ. I didn't say whether you are perfect or have complete success and have never broken a commitment. I just said, what is your desire? What is your heart's cry? When you don't fulfill a commitment, how does that impact you? And I'm not talking about impacting you as, well, I see a lot of people are hurt. Does it bother you to break an oath before the Lord? Do you consider those things, your vocation, your parenting, your marriage, oaths before the Lord? Because if you don't, you should. But if you have those desires, even if you failed in your promises, you have Christ still fighting in you and for you and with you. You can't expect victories quickly without work, but we do expect victories in Christ, period. Without doubt. And Joshua didn't, I love that Joshua didn't dwell on some past broken promise that he made. Which he did. He broke a promise to God. He said, okay, today, what am I going to do? I'm fulfilling my obligations before God. Even the ones that I screwed up on, I'm going full bore. And he goes full bore. And we expect victory simply because God is faithful to what he started in our hearts. Even if We're not. That's what's beautiful about the Christian faith. And not only does Joshua here fulfill his commitment to the promise that he should have never made, 
despite that mistake, I think the most beautiful thing is God proves himself faithful to Joshua. This isn't about Joshua. It's about God's faithfulness. So verse 10 through 15, here's what it said. An awesome, amazing, should be made into a movie type of scene. It would be fantastic. Verse 10. It said, And the Lord, as they start to battle, threw them, these are the, the enemy, into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Awesome. Okay? At that time, so it gets better. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, scholars disagree whether God said this or Joshua said this, whether it was his prayer or he prayed to God and that God spoke. Who knows? Look what happens though. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar, which is an ancient book of poetry, which has a lot of biblical, uh, it's Jewish, has a lot of biblical um, explanations and references this. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded, some translators say obeyed, the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So check this out, okay? The Israelites, and if this doesn't fire you up, I don't know what's wrong with you, okay? The Israelites are battling a five-army army. Okay, it's huge. And apart from God, they've traveled 25 miles in the dark. They're wiped out. Apart from God, they don't have a chance and God steps in not only just to direct, but to actively fight as a warrior. And you just see the verbs. First, he throws them into a panic. Second, he strikes them. Third, he chases them. And fourth, as they are running away from the battle, because they're getting so whooped up on, okay, God starts throwing down large hailstones to kill them. Now, if these are anything like the hailstones of Exodus, they're about 100 to 300 pounds like this big. If anyone was there when I preached that sermon, I made one. It was awesome. Not the sermon, but the hailstone, okay? They're huge, if that's what it is. So he's throwing these down, big, huge hailstones like heat-seeking missiles, destroying the evil guys and in missing all the Israelites. So imagine, you're like Israelite, like, yeah, like, sweet. How much confidence are you going to have at that point? It's like, nothing's even touching you. It's not like he accidentally, like, oh, dude, friendly fire, sorry. No, nothing, just wiping them out. they like, you know, about to swing and they're just gone. Awesome. Then, if that's not enough, the whole day is extended. How did that happen? I don't know. 
You can read like five different commentaries that will say five different scientific things. I don't know. It was miraculous. Okay? But the day was extended. Some say the heat of the day was... I don't know what happened. Something happened that made the light longer, the day longer. But God made sure that the work was done. He made sure that it was done completely. There was more work to get done. God made it get done. He doesn't believe in the halfway. He doesn't believe in the partway. He doesn't even believe when I make a mess of myself that he will quit on me partway. He will fulfill it all. If I just pick up a stinking sword, he will fight. I don't even have to kill anybody, and he will fight. But we do have some role to play, interestingly enough. If you read verses 7 through 11, you'll see that everyone says, and then Joshua, then the Lord, then Joshua, then the Lord, then Joshua, then the Lord. There's this interplay between Joshua and his actions and the Lord and his actions. And though I don't fully comprehend it, there's some sort of relationship here between God and man in the battle where they are cooperating together. And it helps to make verses like Colossians 1.29 make sense when Paul says, For this I toil or I work, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's some relationship there as we fight, as we battle. God fights and we fight and we fight and God fights in us. And because God fights, that shouldn't give us an excuse, which it's tempting to, to not hone our fighting skills. Like, dude, I don't even need to learn anything, Right? It should instead give us confidence that whether we're pulling hair or slapping people or doing arm bars and, and fantastic chokeholds, God is there covering our back and our front and our side and everything else. And the greatest miracle in this entire little scene that's incredible is not the hailstones, though that's pretty stinking awesome. And it's not the long day. It's the fact that God listens to a man and responds to his prayer. Very contrasting to what happened in Joshua 9, where Joshua didn't pray and he really messed it up. In fact, the author makes a point in verse 14 there to emphasize the most important part here is not the hailstones or the day. The fact that there's never been a day like this is emphasized because God listened to the words of a man in a way that he had not before. And so I don't think this means we can command the Lord, which, honestly, there's the name it, claim it, you know, give God permission and do X, Y, Z, and you just aren't allowing him to bless you. <laughs> Junk, okay? I don't believe that, that you can just command the Lord. But Joshua's prayer also, I don't think, although not a terrible idea, doesn't teach us that we should approach the throne instead of asking for a slingshot, we need to ask for a flamethrower or a rocket launcher, okay? I don't... Although, I think we could probably ask for a lot more than we do um, through faith in God. But instead of maybe asking for weapons at all, maybe the best weapon we have in our arsenal is prayer. And it's simply prayer that God will open up his. Because he's got like the sun and moon and large hailstones to work with. And we have like, you know, one pump daisies that really don't work that well. But think about this for a second. The day isn't extended for Joshua. 
it wasn't extended in such a way that, okay, well, let's extend the day so Joshua has enough time to kill people. The day was extended for God to fight. It was a prayer of, God, you continue to fight for us. Extend the day. So you, and if you look at where he says he, he chased them with hailstones and killed them as far as Azekah, that's like 15, 20 miles past Jerusalem. So Gibeon, 25 miles to Jerusalem, they kept running. And God's like, poof, 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 like nonstop. They're not going to keep up. They're like, yeah, extend the day so they all die on the way down. Depending on God, trusting on God, all about God fighting, not Joshua fighting. Beautiful and scary. Verse 16. See what happened to these five kings. These five kings, these brave, bold men, fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack the rear guard, and do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord God has given them into your hand. And when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned to Joshua in the camp at Mecca. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and they brought these five kings out to him from the cave the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those king out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening, but at that time of the going down of the sun, according to Mosaic law, Joshua commanded they took them down from the trees and threw them into a cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. You have two very contrasting leadership models here. Maybe you just say commitment models. And I just... Consider, ask all of us to consider where we're at. One group prays for God's light to stay longer. Five go hide in a dark cave away from it. One, Joshua is fulfilling a commitment that he made. Five are abandoning all their obligations to their men. One is choosing to enter a difficult, impossible, risky battle. Five, hide from the difficult, risky battle. One is strong and courageous, and five are very weak and very cowardly. One submits and ends up saving his entire family and the nation. Five, rebel and destroy their entire families and all of their kingdoms. One believes in the promises of God, and five believe in the promises of sin, which is pretty much the ratio we probably see today. One 
fears God, and five, fear everything but God. Very different. Very different. And eventually the kings are led out of the cave, and before the entire army, Joshua, again, whose name means Jehovah, the Savior, instructs his commanders to follow what is, at that time, a a pretty ancient custom, custom to place their feet upon the necks of the humiliated kings. And it's not just some cruel, unusual act of a general that's kind of full of himself. That's not what Joshua is. The book of Joshua is not about Joshua against the Canaanites. The book of Joshua is about God against sin. That's what the book of Joshua is, and that's what the picture we see here. It's the picture of the true king justly declaring his authority over all the false kings of the earth. Ones that he's put in place, mind you. And as Israel is God's representative on earth to do this, Joshua encourages these men in the same way that God actually encouraged him by telling them to be strong and courageous, saying, this is what the Lord will do to every enemy that you fight against. For Joshua, it's the Canaanites at the time, and for us, it's the continual battle with sin and Satan and death. Now, all of this, I believe, points to the cross, which all of Scripture does and every story in Scripture does. But the cross, don't be fooled, the cross is not the one place where the enemies of God, whether they were religious or political or earthly or spiritual, like got one over on God. The one place where, where the enemy won the battle. If you've ever seen Passion of the Christ, you have that scene at the end where Satan is kind of laughing, not realizing that there's actually a victory in that tragedy. On the contrary, that place... The cross is where God put his foot on the neck of sin, where, as he said he would in Genesis chapter 3, crushed the head of Satan, where he removed the sting of death. Now consider how this verse here in Colossians impacts the way that you actually fight and walk and live today, right now. Colossians 1 says this, very mirror image of what Joshua was doing with his kings. It says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, describing us and those who are in Christ, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, along with all of our sin, to the cross. Now check out verse 15. He... This is on the cross. It's after the resurrection. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them publicly, as Joshua does here. And if Jesus has won, if Jesus has, not will, okay, catch that, not will win, he'll win someday. No, no, no. Has won, has disarmed the rulers, has put them to open shame like this, then fighting our battles and fulfilling whatever obligations we have is not about how well we've done or how well we think we'll do. It's all about what Christ has already accomplished. 
That should change the way you approach any battle where you are guaranteed victory. Now, this is simply about stepping onto the battlefield because it is right and trusting that it's God who is going to fight for you. Not guaranteeing of what that's going to look like, but guaranteeing that there's going to be victory, if not now, without question in eternity. So whether you are a man or a woman or a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a church member, a son and daughter of Jesus, you are to fulfill your obligations by the strength of Christ for the glory of Jesus. If you are willing, God will be faithful. Period. All you got to do is pick up a stinking sword. You don't have to be very good at swinging it. And God will fight the battle. But if you never enter the battlefield, if you never put your foot on there, I don't understand how you can even possibly have victory because you're not even in the battle. You're hiding in the friggin' cave. God will fight. God does fight. If your marriage is in shambles, if your job is just oppressive and terrible, if your parenting is a disaster, turn towards God. Grab the sword. He will fight for you. And I'll close with one verse out of Ephesians 6, verse 10, that reminds us how to fight in our obligations. And it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. So don't walk away thinking, I just got to work harder. No. You just have to depend harder on God.